0: of redemption for people from all nations and uh, we thank you Uh, we pray that you would change us by it. Don't just inform our minds but we pray that we'll be deeply changed uh, for your glory. Uh, In Jesus name, amen.
1: Okay so reading from Romans 9 verses 1 to 29. It's up on the screen as well. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac the offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, Only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah.
0: Friends, uh, let's pray together before we start. I'm going to pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we... um, We pray this morning that you might uh, lift our eyes to the reality of who you are. Uh, Father, give us a right sense of wonder and awe and reverence and uh, a right fear before you. Uh, Father, we know that your word gives light and life and we do pray that you might enable us by your spirit to receive your word today humbly and joyfully for the building up of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, some of us, and maybe this is you, maybe you're one of these types, some of us love uh, massive epic movies, right, or stories, uh, massive epic stories. You, maybe you're a, a Tolkien fan or you're hanging out for the new Star Wars movie that's going to come out soon. Uh, the thing about those epic stories, uh, they kind of, they tell these great incredible big picture stories, right, of great catastrophe, big heroes. The thing about them, though, is, right, they're always only ever um, stories in one slice of time, right? They're, they're kind of stories at a particular moment. There's an ep- they're an epic for one moment. like Then, you know, the the kind of the, the drama gets resolved and life goes on and, and we wait for the new villain to emerge and the new hero to come. Hollywood kind of counts on that. They know that that's the case. That's why they get us back to the cinemas every year to, to follow up on the next big epic. Uh, friends, you don't have to be around Christian things very long uh, before you see that there's some kind of similarities between the Christian story and these epic big stories that get told, right? Uh, the Bible, the story of the Bible is mind-blowingly big. It's massive, it's an epic movie on steroids. But that even that kind of doesn't quite capture it, does it? Even that doesn't capture it. Uh, there's, a, there's a crucial difference that kind of puts the, the Christian story, the story of the Bible, sets it right apart from all those other great kind of epic stories that capture our imagination, isn't there? Uh, it puts it on a whole different plane. You see, the Christians, the story of the Bible claims not just to be a story about one time and place, one hero and one villain, it claims to be the story, the true story of every time and every place, the true story of the whole world. Every person who has ever lived and ever will live is swept up in the scope of this great story that the Bible tells. We we got a glimpse of that over the last four weeks. If you've been with us, we've been, we read through the Book of Ruth, this tender, lovely little uh, little story about one kind of family. Uh, we saw last week how that story, uh, the, the the kind of ending of that story, opens it up to this bigger story. It's not just a story about one family. It plugs into this great story of what God is doing in the whole world, the great story of the Bible that is ultimately brought to its climax in its one hero, the Lord Jesus himself. It's incredible, this story, and if you 've kind of, hung around Christian things for a while, you'll get a sense of that. It should fill anyone who has half a pulse with wonder, right? The the scope and the the greatness of this great true story that the Bible tells. It filled Paul, the Apostle Paul, the uh, the guy who wrote this letter to the Romans. It filled him with wonder and awe. Uh, Paul wrote... This great letter to the Romans and he, he kind of, he wrote it, if, you've, if you're with us as we read through the first eight chapters together, uh, he, he wrote it in a way uh, uh, all about this great epic story, what he calls the gospel, the great announcement of what God has done in Jesus. We stopped that a couple of months ago, we had a pause and we've done some other things now, we're returning it to it. If you remember though, where, where we finished off in Romans chapter 8, uh, That's where you kind of saw this, the heart of Paul having been gripped by this massive story of the Bible, the gospel story. You saw his heart uh, kind of overflow. If you've got your Bibles, you can kind of flick your eye back to chapter 8, the ending there. He finishes that uh, in verse 38 of chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's kind of overflowing with wonder about the, the bigness of this, the incredible reality of this story that he's been telling us through Romans. You can kind of feel the exhilaration and maybe you felt that as we read up to Romans 8 a couple of months ago. Um, But what's a bit surprising is uh, kind of alongside that great wonder that Paul has for the gospel, alongside that he, he he also feels a great tragedy. There's a great tragedy in all of this for Paul. Uh, And he he keeps writing. The letter to the Romans doesn't end there. He keeps writing. And this great tragedy kind of comes into focus for him. Uh, Maybe you felt something similar to Paul. Uh, If this gospel is so wonderful, right? If this gospel is so big, so exhilarating, if it captures everything, why are there so many people who don't believe it? Maybe you're someone who's asked that question. Um, maybe you're not a Christian and that's kind of something that occurs to you. Or maybe you are a Christian and you're someone who has... You, you have yourself personally tasted the, the goodness of this news about Jesus, about forgiveness and new life, a new identity in Christ. You've experienced hope and peace through, through Jesus' re- death and resurrection. And you find your, perhaps you find yourself thinking, if this is so good... Why doesn't everyone receive this, right? Well, if that's you, you're in good. You're in good company, because uh, the Apostle Paul felt a similar kind of thing. He felt the same thing. Uh, we're going to see as we re-read through this chapter how intensely he felt it. For Paul, though, there's actually more going on for Paul than even there is for us in our kind of questioning about all of this there's more going on for Paul there's something deeper the tragedy wasn't just to do with kind of people in general who don't believe in Jesus it's a deeper thing a great tragedy that cut him to his core and the tragedy was that his own people the Jews the people of Israel on the whole didn't believe and you get that as you kind of jump into chapter nine uh, it, it's it's we didn't quite we can't it We can't quite get it today because we have had this long break between chapter 8 and today. If we looked at chapter 8 last week, you would have really noticed the huge contrast as you start reading chapter 9. This massive shift in tone. Paul's gone from exhilaration to, well, it's like he's... You can kind of imagine Paul finishing chapter 8 off. Needing to have a bit of a break, go grab a cuppa, put his feet up for a bit, and then steel himself to come back to this because he knows he has something incredibly important that he needs to write about. Uh, At the start of chapter nine, he writes after after chapter eight, the great chapter eight of Romans. He writes, "I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow." and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's grief for his people, Israel, is so deep, right? And you can see there, he says that he would, even if it were possible, he knows it's not possible, but his grief for them is so deep that he, he says, if, if it were possible, I'd give up my own salvation for them. He knows he can't, that's how he feels. He looks around at the world of his day and he sees that the vast majority of the people of the Messiah, the people of Israel, the vast majority of them, haven't recognised their Messiah. They, They haven't seen him for who he... They've rejected him. Not all of them, of course. The first Christians were all Jews and Paul himself's a Jew. But on the whole... Well, the great news of Jesus went out and spread over the world. On the whole, the people of Israel, the people of the story of God and his world, on the whole, they didn't believe. It can be hard to, for us, I think, to see how big a problem this was for the first Christians, right? just after Jesus. We're kind of pretty removed from it, but it was a massive issue. It was Paul's anguish about this it wasn't just because he's related to these guys, it's much deeper. You see, if, the people, of, if Israel, the people of Israel, if they were God's special people, if they were given all the incredible privileges in verses uh, 4 and 5 of, of, of chapter 9, that he lists off all these incredible privileges, if they were the people God guided with his word, who God set apart, if those people, if that people are now no longer part of the people of God, If they have rejected God's Messiah, Paul knows that that can raise huge questions. That can raise huge questions, not just about his own grief, about his own people, but huge questions about God and his faithfulness. His ability to follow through on his plans, his promises. Paul knows that for some people the reality of Jewish unbelief in Christ, in Jesus will cause them to to despair and to stop trusting this God. We're going to trace Paul's thought, his kind of, I'll put it there on the outline, Paul's consolation, his, his way of uh, reflecting on this. Uh, we're going to trace his thought through the rest of this chapter. It's a really important chapter, but in, in, in essence, I think for us to hear it rightly... Uh, Paul really wants us as readers to have our own kind of Copernican revolution. Have you heard of the Copernican revolution in the 16th century? The astronomer Copernicus famously kind of showed that the sun uh, and stars don't go around the earth, but the earth and planets revolve around the sun. Uh, this phrase, the Copernican revolution, became, has become something of a symbol, right? A, a symbol for a complete shift of centre, a complete change of centre. Uh, friends we won't hear what paul is saying in romans 9 properly unless we have our own kind of spiritual copernican revolution in how we think about god we naturally think of ourselves at the center uh, we naturally think of that god and everything else and the people around me revolve around me romans 9 is going to force us to have this kind of total shift of center we god is god we're not He's at the centre and we revolve around him. Well, with that, let's look at sort of Paul's response to this dilemma, this anguish that's before him. Uh, we, we'll just we'll work through, and if you have your hand out there, you can see there's a bit of an outline that might help you keep up with where we're up to. Uh, the first, he opens this chapter by opening up this pain he feels, this great anguish about the unbelief of Israel. But then he turns to kind of face some of the objections that will come because of this. Uh, he kind of anticipates this. He's done it before. If you remember through Romans, he's done this. It's kind of like he's, uh, he's sitting down at the local with a bunch of his mates, uh, <laughs> sitting around chatting about this stuff, and he's imagining their objections. So as he's writing this, he's imagining all the, all the kind of objections these, these imaginary friends are going to be throwing at him as he's saying this. Uh, And the first one, and you can kind of picture the scene, right? He's imagining someone saying, aha, right? What good is your God, Paul, (laughs) right? What good is your God if he set the nation of Israel apart and now they've rejected him, right? If God's behind Israel and now they've walked away, what good is he? Hasn't his word failed? Doesn't this show that he's not powerful? He's made great promises, Doesn't this show that he can't carry through with them? And you can see as we read on, Paul says, no. The fact that on the whole, Israel hasn't recognised their Messiah, that it doesn't actually change anything about God and his plans and his power. The reason Paul gives, as we look on, is that, and it's on your handout there, the reason Paul gives is that God sovereignly chooses his people and he always has. He sovereignly chooses his people and he always has. Verse 6, it's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. See what Paul's saying there? Uh, Being part of the true people of God is not and has never been about being born into the right family, right? Or the right nation. It's never been about that. You can't inherit it. There's two Israels that Paul writes about, there's two Israels, two people of God, the physical Israel, the the ones who were all part of this great family, this great nation, the physical Israel, and then the spiritual Israel, the true people of God. And just because you're part of the first doesn't mean you're automatically part of the second. But how do you kind of get into that second group? Right? The, not just the physical Israel, but the, the true spiritual Israel, the true people of God, how do you get into that? It's not through being born into the right family. It is simply and fundamentally through God's sovereign choice. Uh, it's what theologians call election, God's election of those who are his, his spiritual people. And to show that's true... And to show that that's been the way it's always been, uh, Paul goes right back to the beginning of Israel's history, right back to Abraham. As you keep reading in verse 7, you can see it there. um, Verse 7, not because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, and he quotes God's promise to Abraham, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, if you don't know the story, it's kind of quite important in the background here. Uh, the, the story, right back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, God had given incredible promises to Abraham. This guy Abraham, he'd, he'd plucked Abraham out of uh, out of nothingness, you know, out of just a, a random kind of life. He'd plucked Abraham out and had given him incredible promises that through Abraham and his family, his descendants, he would bring his blessing to the whole world. He would fix up the world. He would undo the curse of sin and evil and death in the world. The problem was, and if you read through the story, you pick this up. The problem is Abraham and, and his wife Sarah are really old. Uh, they're too old to have kids. Um, and so they try and get help. They try to, well, they try to kind of help God out. And, and they say they get Sarah's uh, sort of maidservant, Hagar, uh, to have a child with Abraham. Kind of, it's their way of giving God a bit of a helping hand. And Hagar has a boy, Ishmael. Uh, But God says, no. God says, no. Uh, This new people I'm calling out is not going to be something that you do yourself. It's going to be my creation. It's going to be my creation. Uh, This line of promise isn't your doing, Abraham. It's not your doing. It's mine. And I will carry it through. I've chosen uh, that it's through Sarah's son, that this promise will continue on, even though it's impossible in your eyes. And if you know the story, the impossible happens. Sarah miraculously has a baby, uh, a 90-year-old in the maternity ward, right? Uh, It it gets even clearer, though, as you go on. Isaac himself has two sons. Uh, This is Isaac, uh, Abraham's son. He has two sons of his own, Jacob and Esau. Uh, But then they're by the same mother, they're not by different mothers, they're by the same mother. And it's like Paul is highlighting, as you read on in verse 11, it's like Paul's highlighting here that there's nothing that separates these two kids from Isaac. There's nothing that sort of differentiates. Verse 11, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It's kind of a total reversal of what... They thought it should be that the younger should serve the older, but uh, she, Sarah, uh, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's a really strong little phrase, probably a, a, a turn of phrase, kind of like what Jesus says when he says, uh, you can't follow me unless you hate your father and mother. He's using kind of an e- extreme language, not, not meaning you should be filled with hateful thoughts towards that person, but uh, a kind of um, comparison, a preference. Uh, he's saying here that uh, God's preference lay with Jacob and not with Esau. His choice to bless lay with Jacob and not Esau. God chose Jacob and not Esau. If you know the story, you'll know that it wasn't, it's really important, it wasn't because Jacob was a nice guy, right? It wasn't because he was a fine, upstanding citizen, His name, you uh, you know, what Jacob's name means, right? The name Jacob. Sorry, Jake. It means uh, deceiver. Uh, 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 The one who kind of, yeah, it means something like deceiver, And and that's what he was. He was a liar. He was a cheat. But God chose Jacob, the younger son, before either of them had done anything good or bad. In order, Paul says, that his purpose in election might stand in order that his promise would continue and it would be clear to everyone that it carries on, not by works, not by impressive people kind of partnering with God and giving him a bit of help. People who God is lucky to have in his side. right? No, his great purpose, his plan to bring blessing to the world, to defeat sin and evil, to set up his eternal kingdom, would be carried out not by works but by his own Sovereign will and purpose and choice, his call, his election. Well, you read on, and uh, the, the objections keep coming. You can tell this is quite a um, you know it's going to raise a few issues for lots of people. Paul anticipates that he, the objections keep coming in verse fourteen. Paul hears uh, he kind of hears this objection, and it kind of flows on from that. If if this is true, then isn't God Unjust, isn't he, isn't he not right in doing this? To call some and not others, isn't he unjust? Verse 14, Paul writes, no, he's not at all. Uh, and then what he does is he goes to another part of Israel's story, the story of Moses and the Exodus, right? Uh, Abraham's descendants, if you know, familiar with the story, Abraham's descendants wind up in Egypt. They're sl- enslaved by Pharaoh God leads them out with great signs and wonders. Uh, he takes them to a mountain. He gives Moses the, the leader of Israel, He gives them his him. Uh, God gives him his law. But while Moses is up on the mountain, if you remember the story, what's happening down with all the people, uh, they, they as soon as they get out of uh, slavery to Egypt, they enslave themselves to an idol. They, they make a golden calf. Moses is up, God's giving Moses his law, the people go straight to idolatry. They worship this golden calf that they make. They start worshipping it. Uh, and Moses comes down and he's red hot, angry, right? He's full of anger as he comes down the mountain back to Israel, this people. He, he takes the stone tablets that had the law broken on them, that God's good law had been given. He takes them and smashes them. He throws them down. And there's a terrible judgment of God on his people, Israel, You'll read about that, in which thousands of people die. And then Moses goes back to God to plead for his people, for this people of Israel. Moses goes back to God and pleads for the men. And it's in that context, that story, uh, it's in that con- where it's totally clear, right? That story, it's in that context where it's totally clear that the people don't deserve it. The people do not deserve any relationship with with God. What they deserve is his judgment. In that context, Moses pleads with God and God reassures him. Paul quotes it in verse 15 God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then God gives Moses back uh, a new set of tablets. old tablets, not new ones like we have, uh, proper stone tablets. Uh, he gives them a new set with the law written on it and he goes back down. The story continues. Israel is not wiped out incredibly and the story goes on of God and Israel. You're, at the end of that story, you're not, left, you're not left angry about the injustice of God, right? You're not left kind of thinking God was not just there. The incredible thing is not that he should judge. The incredible thing is that he should not judge. <laughs> the incredible thing that he is that he would have mercy on anyone at all. That's the incredible thing. No one deserves it. But he gives it anyway. Not because they deserve it, but because of his free and open and sovereign grace. And in verse 16, as you keep reading through this really um, confronting chapter, right, verse 16, Paul gets to the heart of what he wants to say. Being a part of God's people, Paul says, uh, is always because of God's mercy and not because of our desire or effort. That's what we kind of, uh, the verse we had up for the kids' talk. It's always because of God's mercy, not because of our desire or effort. And if you think about it, right, if you just kind of pause and think about it, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It, it should make sense, if, especially if you've read Romans up to this point. Uh, if there was something that God saw in us, right, some kind of inner divine spark or some kind of if he saw that we were actually a bit better than everyone else and that's the reason that he... Calls us or chose us, then that wouldn't that wouldn't be his free mercy. It would be something that we have contributed, we've earned. It wouldn't be grace. And we would all be under the terrible burden of never knowing if we actually had the right stuff. If we actually if we actually were good enough. What's more if as you go, if you followed Paul up to now, this really just flows out of everything he's said. Up to chapter eight. Uh, We have no righteousness of our own, right? Paul has kind of hammered that away through Romans. He's stripped away every human confidence in in ourselves, every grounds for confidence. On our own, we don't even want God. (laughs) On our own, we don't even want to want God. (laughs) We exchange our worship for idols. We worship created thing rather than the creator. And Paul writes, every mouth is silenced and the whole world is accountable to God. It is totally clear for Paul, if you're a Christian, it is not because you deserve it. It is not because you deserve it in any way. It is only and simply because of God's mercy, his gracious choice, to save you and bring you out of the kingdom of darkness and into his wonderful lights, to cause you to be born again, adopted into his family. Well, Paul kind of keeps drilling down into this theme. He won't let us off the hook. He won't kind of let us go. He keeps going in verse 17 he keeps going and he shows he names it he he shows that there is actually also a negative side to this positive choice this choice is is this positive choice to save a people for himself paul shows that there is also a negative side a hardening that comes from god verse 17 the scripture says to pharaoh i raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God purposefully hardened Pharaoh, the king in Egypt who was enslaving the Israelites. Uh, he did it, God did it to show his glory. Uh, to show his glory, so that every, the whole world would know Pharaoh stood up to God, was hard towards God. Uh, but God beat, it, it was no match. God brought his people out through great signs and wonders. Friends, it's important here to see there is a crucial difference between God's mercy and his hardening. Uh, his mercy and his hardening both are sovereign acts of his will. Right? They're both in his sovereignty. But through the story of the scripture, his hardening his hardening of people goes together with their own hardening of themselves. His hardening of people goes together with their own hardening of themselves. You see that with Pharaoh, right, the, 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 the example that Paul uses. We're told in Exodus that both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And they're both kind of held together and they're both true. God's hardening, God's hardening is on those who deserve it, who's, who harden their own hearts and who are under his right and just condemnation. It's not the same with his mercy. See, his hardening is, goes together with our hardening of our own hearts. Uh, his mercy... Is entirely from him, and we have no we don't contribute anything to it. We're not responsible for his mercy like we are for this hardening that happens. Uh, but it is um, a reality, a, a kind of in some ways a difficult truth that Romans nine puts before us. We're going to go on though, Francis. We can't cover all the kind of details there. Uh, he finishes off this section and, and he, he faces this objection in verse 19. Uh, he goes on to a new kind of objection. Then why does God still blame us, right? Why does, and you can understand that line of thinking. If everything Paul said up to this point is true, then why does God still blame us? <laughs> Who's able to resist his will? Uh, Paul could have reflected here, I think, if I was Paul, that's what I would have done. I'm not Paul and it's a good thing. Uh, Paul could have reflected here on what I was just talking about, on this kind of dynamic how Pharaoh hardens his own heart and God hardens his heart. He could have talked about uh, all sorts of philosophical arguments at this point, and you can get books. I've got a couple if you want to read them uh, that devoted to this whole topic about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's really interesting here, though, isn't it, that he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he kind of see, senses, he gets to a point, he senses behind this question not a humble seeking after God and truth, but a kind of proud heart, a clever attempt to argue our way out of hearing and receiving God's word. He goes on the front foot, verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, friends, Paul knows that we're not pottery, right? He knows that we're not pottery. We're people made in the image of God. Um, the point, of, though, of this illustration between the potter and the pottery, it's not to kind of denigrate people The the whole point of it is to magnify God, to magnify God. The difference between you and God is like the difference between a pot and the potter. That's the difference between you and God. And there comes a right point. There comes a right point at which if God is really God and you are not, there comes a right and proper point at which you close your mouth before him we are peering into deep mysteries here this isn't a kind of anti-intellectualism right it's not a kind of don't think about it attitude it's a simply a recognition of who you are and who god is a recognition that his word comes to us from his very spirit breathed into his prophets and apostles to be received, more than to be rationalised away, to be un- received humbly and gratefully and believed. God is not tame. You know that great um, scene in uh, the the Narnia story, the Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe. They go to the uh, the Beavers' kind of hut. They're looking for, and they start talking about uh, Aslan, the great lion Aslan. Uh, the the four child, Pevensey children, if you're familiar with the Narnia stories, and they're talking about Aslan, uh, and they 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 uh, the kids ask Mr Beaver, I think it is, they ask him, uh, but they're talking to this great lion, right, the king of Narnia, they ask him, but is he is he safe? And Mr Beaver says, safe? What are you talking about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. <laughs> he's not a tame lion kind of this theme that goes through. He's not tame. You, uh, if, you, if your concept of God is a tameable, safe reality in a box, then he's, not, he's just a mirror. He's not the sovereign, true Lord of the universe. He's just a reflection of your own desires and heart. Our friends, Paul finishes this section reflecting on how this sovereign choice of God in choosing one and not another... Uh, This kind of narrowing down in a way. He he finishes this section by a really surprising and wonderful widening (laughs) after all this narrowing. uh, God chooses to make his wrath and power known, but the emphasis isn't on that. You see down in verse 23, the reason for that is to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. And then this even more surprising twist in verse 24, even to us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. This incredible widening out of the people of God. Now not only to this one people but through them and we'll see this more and more over the next couple of chapters, through them to the whole world, people of every nation. He goes on and quotes from the Old Testament to show this, and kind of he just hammers on his point uh, for the rest of that chapter. God's people have always been uh, the overflow of his powerful mercy, his choice. Uh, He makes people out of nothing. He calls them my people who are not my people. Uh, He preserved Israel through the Old Testament, and that last quote there, uh, if it wasn't for God and his sovereign care and choice of them, they would have been totally wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all by him and his power, his mercy, his choice. Friends, how how do we respond to all this? What do we make of this really strong presentation of the sovereign mercy of God in calling a people out for himself? Um, Perhaps you're not a Christian today. It's wonderful that you're with us. Uh, It's really important coming out of this to, to hear that becoming a Christian is not about sorting your life out, doing the right things and saying the right stuff, right? It's, it's not about you fixing yourself up. Becoming a Christian is all about God's grace, about, his, about receiving his freely given mercy. Romans 9 shows us actually that even the ability to receive that mercy comes from him, uh, and if you are drawn towards God, it's because he has been at work in your life. Uh, we need to hold this reality together with what the Bible says. In other places, Jesus calls out, we know Jesus calls out this wonderful invitation. Come unto me, everyone, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who, everyone who is burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Friends, knowing God's sovereign choice is never an excuse uh, if you hear the call to come to put your faith in Jesus, you can do it and you can do it today and you can do it confident that he will receive you. Uh, but you'll know that you've also, along, all along the way, been drawn by him. Uh, that's the testimony I know of the people in our church family as they've kind of come to faith in Christ. It's kind of like an archway, if you picture a big archway that you walk through, Uh, On the one side, over the top of the archway, on the one side is written that invitation of Jesus to come. Uh, So you you look at that and you, you know that that's what you need. You need his forgiveness and salvation and mercy and grace. So you come. You walk through the archway and then you look back at the same archway, the same reality, and you look back and on the other side of that archway as you look back is written the words, You did not choose me, I chose you. Uh, both are true, both are realities that we hold together. Uh, so don't let this stop you from coming to Jesus if you're not a Christian. Um, pray, pray that God will continue to draw you to himself. Uh, but if you, if for us, uh, others of us who are Christian people here, just a couple of brief things that come out of this passage for us, I think. Uh, this humbling and energising reality of God's sovereign mercy. Um, friends, it's a big issue for Paul, and we're going to focus on it more as we go on. A big issue for Paul is this tension between Jews and Gentiles in the, in the church, the, the first people of God in the Old Testament, uh, and now that the offer of, the, of God's salvation has been sort of widened out to all nations. This tension of how Jews and Gentiles get on together in the churches... big issue issue for Paul Uh, and behind what Paul's writing here and I said this will come into focus more as we keep going is that knowing God's sovereign choice it demolishes any sense of pride or entitlement in you (laughs) knowing God's sovereign choice ought to demolish any kind of sense of pride in yourself or sense of entitlement you have no more or less rights to be here than I do, than the person sitting next to you does, the person you think is just really, really holy, the person that perhaps you don't get on with as well. You have no more or less rights. We are here because of the decision of God. If we don't see that, if, if we don't cling on to this, church will end up just becoming a club of people like me right and what a horrible thought that would be okay it'll just become end up being a club of people who like to be together because they like the same sort of thing no that's not what church is church is the the elected people of god who he sovereignly chooses to bring together in christ the beauty of election the beauty of this sovereign call of god is seen in here <laughs> this wonderful gathering of Diverse people from all over who will probably never get together other than through Jesus. Uh, or these people who God sovereignly calls into his family. Humility, friends, the first thing that flows out of this, I think. And just lastly, the second thing. Um, and we'll, we'll, we will actually fo- focus on this next week, the way in which Paul never for a second thinks that the the reality of God's sovereign choice is an excuse for apathy or laziness or just giving up or not doing anything. It's it's an excuse for inaction. Uh, It's just shrugging our shoulders. Now we'll see, and again more next week, but it sort of comes through, the logic is here, we'll see that uh, God's sovereign choice is actually the most energising reality. it, It means... And, friends, this is wonderful, I think. It means that you are free from that terrible burden that so many in our society are gripped by and can't get past. It means you are free of that terrible burden of having to prove yourself. If your trust is in Jesus, then you can know that's because God has chosen you and called you to himself. Not because of anything in you. (laughs) Not because of anything in you. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You have an unshakable identity. That's not kind of... In, um, in our society, we, we try and create our own identity, right? This is an identity that we create. A created identity, one that we come up with ourselves, is just a, it's a terrible slavery and will lead you to all sorts of anxiety and all sorts of bitterness and all sorts of uncertainty. This is an identity that is graciously given to you by God. And friends, that'll give you a boldness because you know your life is in his hands. Nothing can take that away. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, letter of Paul to the Romans. Thank you uh, for the glorious, incredible, wondrous um, gospel story that Paul paints for us so vividly. Thank you for Paul's own joy in it. Um, thank you that we saw that as we, as we read through Romans 1 to 8. Uh, Father, thank you that, that, stand, that standing behind that is the reality of your great and unstoppable work. Your sovereign choice of a people for yourself to bring glory to your name, Father. There's lots of things here that we may find confusing. Uh, that we, perhaps we even, um, uh, uh, maybe even bristle up against. Uh, Father, we pray. We pray for. Uh, we pray for ourselves, Lord. Give us a humility before you. Help us to know the reality of who you are. Uh, help us too, though, Father, not to see this doctrine of election is uh, that sits behind what Paul writes here not to see it as a kind of puzzle to be solved or a, uh, a nice kind of thing to figure out help us to see it as at the heart of your your gospel your gracious choice calling us from death to life help us to love it father to rejoice in it to be humbled by it to be energized by it and we pray that for your glory in Jesus name amen